everybody, and welcome to the Startups in the Studio podcast. Today's interview is with Clint Smith, the co-founder of Emma, an email marketing software company. Clint has a very interesting story that started off after getting some early traction with the business, going to a bank and getting a line of credit using his personal assets. He and his co-founder put their personal assets at risk in order to line up a $250,000 line of credit to get their business started. And it wasn't until they got past $20 million in annual recurring revenue that they went out and raised another round to help support the growth they needed to get to an acquisition. And they sold the company in 2017. And I'm very excited to have Clint as our guest today, sharing his story of how he raised money and providing a couple of key takeaways and good tips on how to raise money right here on the Startups in the Studio podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Startups in the Studio podcast. I'm very excited to be sitting here today with Clint Smith, the founder of Emma, email marketing software. And I'm really excited to have Clint in today because Clint started Emma back in 2002. And back in 2002, there was no entrepreneur center. There weren't all these great programs in entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurship programs at universities. He didn't have the resources that are widely available to entrepreneurs starting companies these, these days. So I consider him one of the, the godfathers of the, of the tech entrepreneurship scene in Nashville because he had to start his company without all those resources. So if you can imagine how hard it is to raise money today, think of how hard it, it was when there weren't people who were uh, mentors and actively, actively helping entrepreneurs get, especially a tech company started. So welcome today to Clint Smith. Thanks for coming into our, our super high-tech fancy studio. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Happy to be here. So Clint, let's uh, start off with your, your background. You grew up entrepreneurial. Did you have the entrepreneurial spirit early? And did you know that one day you were going to start a, a, start a company here in Nashville? Uh, well, you know, I, I grew up in Albany, Georgia, a, a fairly small town in southwest Georgia, and grew up in a, a, a great household, good parents, you know, strong family. My dad was a doctor and essentially was a small business owner for uh, about as long as I can remember. He was a pediatrician and had his own little office uh, across from the hospital. And I grew up kind of in that environment, watching him not just sort of be a doctor, but sort of run his little, run his little shop, essentially. I would uh, benefited from that small business by mowing yards. Uh, you mow in his yard, uh, the office yard, every Saturday. And that's uh, largely how I you know, funded my hobbies uh, growing up as a kid. And I, w- I wouldn't say I necessarily had the entrepreneurial bug earlier. Like I'm, I'm not a kid who started doing lemonade stands at age six and, you know, starting some sort of, you know, door-to-door business, you know, and, and by sixth grade. But I did grow up in a creative household. My mom had grown up singing and, and playing and teaching piano. And so I caught sort of the music bug a little bit early. And so I took piano lessons as a young kid. I joined a band in sixth grade. We won, you know, the talent show, you know, in sixth grade. Pretty proud of that. Played a Mr. Mr. song, of all things. I, I realize this is on air, but if no one could repeat that, that would be really helpful. Also played a Night Ranger song, slightly uh, more respectable, but maybe not not much. And so I got in. I got into music. Um, I started doing some songwriting, in part, sort of through the church, the Methodist church that we were a part of. Um, and at one point in high school, wrote an entire sort of holiday musical, I guess, for our um, church group to perform. So um, I, I wouldn't say I had the entrepreneurial spirit necessarily, but the creative spirit for, spirit for sure. And, and part of um, 
my decision to come to Vanderbilt for, for school was the fact that I knew that this was the songwriting mecca, right? And I thought maybe there's a chance I might get involved in that a little bit in addition to whatever happened at, at Vandy. And that is what happened. And so um, late in my college career, I started interning at um, Charlie Pride's music company, Pride Music Group. They would let me be, in some cases, the first ears to hear you know, the packet that, that someone had sent in from you know, anywhere around the country or the world, hoping with fingers crossed that this was their big break. And, and, and lo and behold, here I am, some punk college kid, right, kind of making the determination whether it got passed on to the, the higher-ups there. And then I started songwriting a little bit with them and, and got a songwriter's deal um, after college. And so while I uh, did that and sort of dabbled in it, I think I'm the only songwriter in the history of Nashville to have negotiated his draw down and not up because I didn't want, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it professionally. And I didn't want even the sense of sort of obligation, right, that, that came with that money. And, but it was a tremendous experience, and, I, and they let me go in the studio and help record my own demos, and it was just a lot of fun. Meanwhile, I stepped into a day job at a healthcare company as sort of my first real um, job experience, and then it was sort of on from, on from there. And Nashville is very much a creative town, so um, you came here to write music and eventually um, started a company. So uh, what was the genesis of Emma? How'd you come up with the idea? How'd you get started? Yeah, a couple things happened in, in between. I was really lucky that, um, and this would have been, you know, sort of mid-90s, when, to your earlier point, like, not a lot was happening in the software world here. Um, not a lot of, you know, web-based companies at all at that point, right? Um, certainly outside of healthcare. And one came calling, and it was City Search, a sort of uh, Pasadena-based, LA-based company that was uh, launching a series of city guides around the country, and their business plan called for them to go to uh, seven tier two cities to launch. And Nashville was one of those cities. And so here was this West Coast kind of new model, new age, you know, web-based business um, opening an outpost right here in Nashville. And I somehow found my way to them, interviewed for a job. I think they wanted to push me into a sales job. And I didn't really want to do that, so I was sort of the follow-up person who would go out when they sold a small business, kind of a, a website as part of their their larger property. I would go out and help them sort of flesh that out. Then I eventually moved over into the editorial team and was briefly sort of editor of the Nashville site. But it was a tremendous experience, right? Imagine the exposure that you now got to that kind of um, sort of flat, you know, open transparent company with a lot of really smart, really creative people, tremendous energy. It was a great, great company. And I had about a four-year run with them. Ticketmaster ultimately bought them and the job started to roll out to regional hubs and out to LA. And we uh, did not want to move to LA um, as we were expecting our, our first child. And I uh, didn't think that made the most sense. And then I got lucky again that a startup you know, here called smallbusiness.com was just getting off the ground. And so here was a chance to go from being in a, re in a small remote office um, where you got, you know, exposure to, you know, a, a team off to the side and doing great things and occasionally got, you know, a chance to go visit home office to now being, you know, part of, you know, a, a 20, you know, 30 person startup at this point, um, right in the thick of things, right in the room with, with every single person, privy to every conversation and every discussion, every challenge, right, um, up close, right? It was amazing. And that was about a, a, a two-year run. And in, incredible, you know, idea, 
an incredible sort of concept of basically creating like the premier online community and meeting place for small business owners to come together and ask questions of each other, share advice, rate and recommend you know, products and services. Unfortunately, when the dot-com crash came, Nashville was certainly hit just like everywhere else. And you can imagine how freaked out the Nashville banks got. And, and that's sort of what happened. And unfortunately, the rug got pulled out from under the company a little bit before the revenue model had really kicked in in earnest and, and, and they had a little bit more control over their own destiny. But man, an amazing experience, incredible group of people again, and it was on the heels of that starting to wind down that um, one of my coworkers, colleagues there, uh, Will Weaver, had approached me and said, "Hey, what do you what do you think about us teaming up and doing something together?" And Will had come from more of a uh, web design sort of background, and I'd been working on more sort of editorial, marketing, branding, you know, some some product development, and and we decided that we would sort of team up and. And do something together, still not knowing exactly what. That conversation happened at Fido Coffee Shop in one of the front little tables there. And honestly, I mean, I think I said yes, and we agreed to, to do something um, as much out of a, a sense of there not really being any other jobs out there that were interesting. Again, there was there weren't like three or four or ten or twenty other software companies or internet companies that, that had popped up in Nashville that we could sort of roll into from, from smallbusiness.com. There was just no sort of community, there was no sort of landscape. And so it was sort of like, well, if, if no one, if there's nothing else to do, why don't, why don't we come up with something ourselves? And we, we knew we wanted to build software. We knew we wanted to build a product that could get us beyond our own billable hours and have sort of national, if not global reach. But we didn't know what that was going to be yet. Uh, and so rather than try to rush that process, all we decided really that day was that we would start to freelance together and alone, but, but feed the same kitty in the middle uh, with any money we made so we could pay ourselves and buy ourselves time to come up with the eventual idea. And so that's what we did. We did website designs and website redesigns, and I would do some writing projects, and he would do some uh, UI, UX projects, and, and we would just feed the till and, and work kind of side by side. And about four months in, we were meeting with uh, a potential customer. It was the former publisher of the city paper, the now defunct uh, weekly. And we were there to get some website work. Right? And he started the conversation by saying, actually, I think we ought to be doing less with our website, not more. <laughs> we thought, okay, this is going to be a really good business development meeting. right? And we walked out a little bit bummed. But we said, you know, he's not wrong. At some point, you can't put all of your money in the website. You've got to think about other things and other ways to get your message out. And that was the, the kernel of the thought that had us looking at, you know, microsites as maybe a, a, a more svelte and sort of um, uh, smaller, sort of more efficient way of, of building sort of those sort of home-based properties. Uh, but really, we quickly turned our attention more to uh, the way you push your message out. And at that point, email uh, felt like an interesting channel. It was still a little bit nascent um, from a business standpoint. Uh, from a newsletter standpoint, but that's kind of where we started to circle, you know, the wagons and, and hone in on um, that market and and sort of you know went, went from there. The idea. Great. So you're working, doing some freelance work while you're trying to figure out what is the long term plan, what is the long term idea, and it kind of came to you organically just through the work you were doing. So when you finally decided to um, make the leap, and when you were doing the web design, you you guys were doing all the work yourselves. Like it wasn't like. A, you had to outsource technologists and that sort of thing. Was it the same as you were getting Emma started? Or when you came up with the idea for the email platform, it's not like, okay, we need to go find some developers and raise some money to get this started. Like, what was the path to 
getting it off the ground? And like, was there was there a capital raise at any point? Were you bootstrapping, still doing freelance work? How did you fund your, your life? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be clear, my wife um, w- was working and, and bringing in the lion's share of our of our family income at the time. So uh, uh, that turned out to be super helpful, right? We have that uh, in common. Yeah, right. So uh, so that was that became really critical at that point, right? Because it was about time, right? And us having enough of it to sort of figure out what was next. And, and be able to devote some time every day and every week to sort of, the, sort of this future idea where there wasn't money coming in yet. When we did web, website work, we did occasionally have to pull in some, some back-end developers, right? That was not a skill that I brought to the table or that Will did. So we did get exposed a little bit to this idea of pulling some other, other folks into that work. When we, when we got to the point with Emma where we felt like we had something. And that took a little while, right? We would sketch out, right? We would use our skills, you know, first and sketch out the idea for the product and kind of rough that out in words, right? In language, uh, in visuals. We would sketch out what the UI UX would look like and sort of make sure we had the full kind of workflow, the full experience to then go share with people, right? And get some feedback and iterate. And before we pulled in developers, the first developer, we wanted to feel like we had pretty much the, the product mapped out from a customer and sort of a, a user standpoint because we knew that that's what would give us a little more confidence, right, that we we were onto something and also probably save us a little bit of time and money from the developer standpoint. The first developer we hired uh, was, was just a part-time young guy who had worked at smallbusiness.com with us, and um, I think we paid him in you know, six packs of beer and, you know, maybe a few bucks here and there, but he was largely responsible for building the alpha version of the product. And so at this point we were still holding it really close to the vest. You have to understand, like we were, we were really conservative, right? For a few reasons, not the least of which was, this was the first time we were striking out our own. We had not, you know, done anything like this um, independently. Second, we had just seen, you know, a really good idea, a really good business model, a really good group of people ultimately not get all the way to success because of some unforeseen circumstances beyond largely beyond their control. And so that, that led us to be a little bit, a little bit conservative, a little bit cautious. And so we said, gosh, you know, let's, um, let's really, really prove this out every step of the way before we fully commit ourselves and our, our families to this, uh, this venture. And certainly before we, we take other people's money and, and, and have them assume some of the risk alongside us. And so we were very lean we did continue to do other project work, actually sort of well into, you know, that first year, year and a half with Emma, right? Just because we weren't ready to fully, fully commit. But we reached the point where we had a viable product. Uh, we had a handful of, of sort of pilot customers. The Belcourt Theater was our first, um, you know, guinea pig. And, and they will always use Emma for free uh, in exchange for that really helpful feedback and us being able to go around town and say, well, the Belcourt uses it and loves it, Right. But when we got to the point where we felt like we had something and we had some, some, some customers kind of using it a little bit, we did need some other help, right? We did need to pull in some, some development help and some other help around the edges. We knew it was time to raise a little bit of money, right? Because we weren't going to be able to fund those first hires, um, you know, ourselves. And so we prepared to go raise some friends and family slash angel money. And the funny story around that is we had hired a guy who was a former Green Beret who we'd gotten to know a little bit. And we said, hey, can you help us, like, you know, button up the executive summary, you know, the pitch deck a little bit. I'm not even sure we all had pitch decks back in the day, but, you know, some, something like that. And then and then the projections, right? Because we've made up some numbers, right, for the next three to five years like everybody does. But it sure would be nice to, to know if that's anywhere, you know, remotely in, in the ballpark. And so he said, sure, I'm on it. And he came back two weeks later 
And he dropped this big binder on the table in front of us. And he said, inside this binder for your top five competitors are their revenues from last year, what they think their revenues will be this year, how many employees they have, how many of those employees are engineers, how many of those employees are in, are in sales, where their headquarters are, where their servers are, like all this, all this stuff. They were like, that's crazy. How did, how, I mean, Green Beret, what's your, what's your magic? How did you do all of this, right? What's your trick? And um, he's like, honestly, no trick. I just called into their sales team and said I was interested in taking a look at the product. And salespeople like to talk. And so uh, that was really, really helpful because the math that we had, you know, very loosely thrown against the wall to say in three years we could, you know, possibly doing this was, was, was roughly in line with the math that companies who had about a three or four year, five year head start on us were, were already doing. Um, so it was really validating. We then prepared to go pitch some, some friends and, and family and other folks. Um, and at that point, one of the local banks stepped in and said, hey, before, before you do that, um, if you guys are, are worried about taking up people's money or, or giving up a little bit of equity or, or, or leverage on the company, why don't we start with a, a small line of credit and we'll, we'll go from there. And so that ended up being pretty, pretty fortunate for us. And that, that line of credit you know, grew a little bit over time, but, but every time we'd sit down to increase it, we could also show them you know, a little bit of traction and we were signing up customers and customers were paying us. It's just they were paying us on average you know, 30 bucks a month. Right? And you could see that it was going to take a, a while for the lines to cross. But we were signing more and more up every month. And at, in the end of the day, that line of credit turned out to be in the seed capital. And so once we kind of got to sustainability, to profitability, uh, on, on a monthly basis, we sort of held steady. And each month we would pay a little bit of that line down. Again, being super cautious and conservative, right? Uh, with one goal in mind, just to get completely sustainable on our own. Right, without any other sort of you know folks some having to prop us up, and so that's what we did, and that became our seed money. From there, we just reinvested every dollar we brought in, hired up staff, you know, built up that early version of the business, and you know, and did brought enough in where we were able to just kind of self fund from there. And it wasn't until years later that we actually raised a little bit of outside money. Raising money from a bank is not typically where most entrepreneurs are thinking. Where is the first place I go to money? To get money, what what was the process of getting the money from the bank like for you? And um, for entrepreneurs who think, well, maybe I should go talk to a bank. What do they need to know about what it took to get that line of credit, especially for a company that doesn't have three years of operating profit? So what what did you have to do to get that line of credit? What were some of the terms behind it? Yeah, I mean, back in the day, and I don't know this changed a whole lot. It takes personal guarantees, right? And personal guarantees that that are are, are worth something. And, and the Clint Smith personal guarantee at the time would not have meant a whole lot. But I was really fortunate that my founders, uh, my co-founders' family had a long-standing um, history in Nashville and uh, big relationships around the community and certainly, certainly with this bank. And so it helped to have um, his and his family's backing, quite frankly. I don't, I don't know that we would have been able to pursue that otherwise. So that was, that was lucky and, and maybe, maybe a little bit unique. Um, from there, you know, obviously it took the same thing it would have taken had we, wherever we pulled the capital, you know, sitting down every month, you know, checking in on, on how the business was going, um, showing the numbers, showing the math, making sure that we were, you know, delivering on what we said we would um, every single time out and showing that the business was ultimately on a good path. But that was, that was it. And again, if that hadn't been an option, we were fully prepared to go the other route and to have brought in, you know, a little bit of, of, of seed capital from, you know, close connections and, and maybe folks one or two degrees um, removed. Yeah, and it, it sounds like the risk was still on you. If things went south, it was, your, your assets were still at risk. 
But you know, and, and thinking of of ways to raise money, you know, for startups in you know, outside of these coastal regions, um, you do hear stories of entrepreneurs going to either whether family or actually investors, who say, yes, you know, I will guarantee a hundred thousand or a five hundred thousand dollar loan for you. And exchange sometimes now in this case their assets are at risk, um, so they would maybe get you know a couple percentage points. But maybe for guaranteeing a five hundred thousand dollar loan uh, from a bank they get maybe three or five percent in warrants rather than maybe 10 or 20 percent for that five hundred thousand dollar check so it is a source that's of that's exactly right and, and i think that's more than fair right i think you're right if if someone outside of the founders is taking on that kind of risk alongside them you're right it's more than fair to expect um, some form of, of payback beyond uh, a simple interest rate absolutely so I want to go back to a comment you made. Um, you, you started off with the Bellcourt, which uh, had was using the product for free and continues to <laughs> as, as a thank you. Yeah. Were a lot of your early customers free? Like, did you go and say, hey, you know, use this product, give us feedback, and for all that feedback you're giving, we'll use it for free. Um, was, was that kind of the, the way you kind of, you, you got your first customers and were able to go to maybe bigger customers and say, look at all these great customers that we have? We only did it a few times. Um, and what we tried to do was we tried to pick... Um, a brand uh, within an industry that that uh, was well liked and well respected, certainly locally, and that we could use as a reference brand, um, shopping it around town, right? Uh, because again, we we started by thinking, let's get some local customers sort of in the mix, and then we'll sort of go beyond that. And so the Bellcourt served as uh, sort of our representative um, nonprofit slash arts and entertainment venue, right? And so that checked one box. We went and found somebody else who was more straight up business. Uh, we found a handful of, of brands that we wanted to work with and whose, whose use of Emma and, and sort of our ability to um, talk that up, right, in sort of marketing and a conversation was more valuable than the $30 a month would have been. But once we had a few of those in, in hand, then we did start um, charging folks. And again, the, the nice thing about something like Emma was, was the price point was, was low enough where uh, in, in some cases it didn't take a ton of convincing for them to take a chance on us. In some cases, we would certainly offer the first month free, right, just to sort of let them sort of get in and, and test it out and that sort of thing. But once we had a handful of free customers that sort of served as, as enough to get us sort of launched, and then, of course, we wanted to make sure that customers would pay us for it, right? So it was kind of a continuation of that, of that validation, you know, effort to make sure that what we were building and, and people said they liked was truly something they valued, right? Which is, all, you know, the proof's in the pudding, right? It's until you go back and ask them to pay for the thing that, that you're not entirely sure that that's, uh, that that's the case. Yeah, so I, I meet with entrepreneurs all the time who say, you know, oh, I'm going to go give away my product for free to all these customers so that I can say, like, look at these great customers I have. And I got advice starting in crowd very early. Uh, if you don't charge people, you don't know whether or not they're willing to you pay for it. You don't know, know if you that's have right. a, a business. That's right. So what advice do you have for founders who are thinking, like, how, how long do I give this away for free? Like, at, w at what point do I need to start thinking, like, I need to go ask for money? Yeah, I, you know, I think you're right, like, as soon as possible to figure that out. Now, there, there are different models, right? I mean, people approach pricing now in different ways, and there are certainly, you know, uh, a number of, a lot of software companies that take more of a freemium, you know, sort of model where there is a base layer of features and capabilities that may be free, now and forever, and and the game is to get them, get as many people into that freemium level, with the hopes of upgrading them into more premium and pay sort of features over time, right? So there are are different models, 
but I think you're right. Like this, whatever, whatever it is, the sooner you can get some of those early customers paying, because you're right. Until you've done that, you're not fully in the market, and you haven't really sort of validated the the, the whole thing. So I think I think as soon as possible is, is a general <laughs> generally a good idea. Go out and ask for money <laughs> if you've got a product that's, that's worth right. anything. People are willing to pay for it. Um, so let's let's get back to the funding piece. So you've raised your you've raised some seed capital through a loan. Uh, you've start. I guess what what where did that see money get you? And then at what point did you go out and where did you raise your next round? And and what are the 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 stages of raises from that point on? Yeah, so um, it got us people right, um, and and that's when that's when it triggered the the need for capital for us. It was when we needed help beyond the two of us, and and so really uh, for us it, it equated to first and foremost, you know, first a handful of hires, certainly some other things, you know, to support those people in terms of you know. Equipment, you know, etc. But it was mainly people, and, and again, we would just sort of um, try to pace the hires sort of against the, the the line we had access to, and then ultimately against sort of um, you know the profits that we were bringing into the business, and 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 trying to sort of pursue this ambitious but manageable growth path. You know, again, because we knew that every day we were running that business, it was the largest business we'd ever run, and wanted to be sort of thoughtful about things. But also keep things, you know, growing nicely, and that's what happened for for a number of years. So again, the, the oddity f- uh, of us of Emma was that we didn't really we were a completely independent company, no outside investors, you know, no equity distributed beyond the company. Now we were we were generous with employees because we felt like at, at the end of the day, everybody who joined us and stayed with us and contributed, you know, in a meaningful way needed to have a stake in the outcome. And so that was our philosophy there. But all the equity was held with, within the company, you know, for, for, for years. And it really wasn't until we were, I mean, we were, we were past 20 million in ARR before we raised a little bit of money. And that raise was really with an eye toward positioning ourselves for acquisition within the next few years. Um, we had sat down and decided for a variety of reasons at that point that you know the, the market signs were, were pointing to a lot of acquisitions and, and a lot of roll-ups you know for you know personal uh, reasons you know that we had I'd now been in the business you know 13 years at that point my co-founder will had rolled off to, to, to start another company you know several years prior so we all sort of felt like it was maybe a good time you know on the personal side of the family side to, to think about doing something else eventually and we were still in a market that was good uh, things things were going really well and so we raised a little bit of money to well, for a couple of reasons. One of which is we we did like the idea of having you know more people supporting us kind of around around the periphery. We had all I'd always tried to surround us with um, you know with with good advisors, good mentors, you know peers that I could go to. But it's not quite the same as having people invested on your board and helping to really guide you through some pretty big stuff. And we knew that we were headed to some pretty big stuff if we were talking about um, you know being acquired. And so that was part of it. And so we went to National Capital Network and Sid and Chase, and, and, and they were able to bring in you know a cohort of, of angels as part of their group. And, and that was the group that, that sort of uh, gave us the funding. And we used it to you know, accelerate you know, growth and, and build out the sales team you know, more than we had. To, to go out and hire some some pretty seasoned uh, leaders to help really build out the team, not just thinking about kind of the next year or two, but really that time maybe beyond acquisition, so that we could I, I could feel good knowing that we had a really really good team um, to ultimately sort of um, see us through the some of the inevitable changes and also take the reins eventually, and that's kind of what we did. So um, you raised capital at. 
20 million in revenue and you know i i, I want to fill in the gap i guess you know there was a 13 year gap there it sounds like to get from launch to, to 20 million in revenue is that is that pretty accurate uh, fairly accurate yeah i mean we we launched emma yeah in 03 and i would call it probably 04 when we really turned on the lights but yeah close to that so was there was there any funding in, in between there or it was like the bank line got you started and then you didn't have to even go out and see capital until you, until you decided, like, we want to bring in some partners that can help us scale this to a point where it's, a, it's attractive as an acquisition. Yeah, that, that's right. And, you know, we, we go back and forth over whether it, it might have made sense to do a subsequent raise, you know, when we were sort of three or four years in, right? And, and I, I go back and forth on that. I think we could have benefited from bringing in a, a few of those seasoned investors, stakeholders, kind of board members earlier, right? I know that we probably would have avoided some mistakes that, that we made and that I made, but we never felt that, we never felt like there was that moment where we had to have more capital than we were generating for ourselves. Um, we were never stuck not being able to make that next hire, invest a little bit more in product development, invest a little bit more in marketing. And so I think that was part of it, right? We were enjoying our, our lives uh, um, as leaders of an independent company. And being able to continue to just kind of make it up as we, we went along. I mean, part of the reason we started our, our own company was to start our own company and run our own company and, and be on our own and sort of solely responsible for the thing. But I think that paired with, with there, there not ever being that moment where like, gosh, now is the time we've got to bring in some extra capital. Just never felt uh, really urgent. And, and therefore, as much as we talked to potential investors all the way through, it never felt like the right moment until a little bit later um, when sort of the timing felt right, the reason for raising felt right, and we also knew at that point we didn't have to give a whole lot away for it, um, you know, based on what we built to that point. So the the early going back to the early version of the product was that was that built by some of the team that you hired, or were you actually like outsourcing? Like, what what did Bell what did Belcourt originally get? Was that um, money that you had just spent in turn? Because it, it didn't. Did you have the line of credit before the Belcourt? Uh, I can't remember. I, I think we'd gotten the product to a point where a few people, a few people were using it, probably including the Belcourt. So how did that happen? Were you paying developers? Uh, like, was that out of personal capital? How did that early version yeah. of the product get built? Uh, I mean, the, the first checks we wrote were, were out of the, the kitty that we had, you know, put some some of the other projects. We, again, this is what we did. We continued to do other project work. You know, I think we, again, we had our first customers kind of on Emma in, call it fall of 03, we didn't stop doing other projects until well into 04. Again, because that was, we, we were our own little bit of seed capital. And, and when, when I tell you that we scraped this together and, you know, we're, we're incredibly, incredibly lean before that was a term, you know, we paid, you know, the one guy, the one developer largely to build a kind of that simple, you know, sort of uh, MVP version of the product um, to get us out into market just a little bit. And then we had to supplement that with, you know, a, a second contractor, you know, maybe a third uh, before we had a, a little bit more to, to make our own hires. And you took that and built, a, 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 I'm assuming, a profitable business so that you were able to reinvest into the company. Was it from day one, we need to build a profitable company so that we don't have to, to try and figure out where that money's going to come from? So National Capital Network invests when you have, at that point, you had $20 million in AOR when they came in? Mm -hmm. You know, they like to see revenue. A lot of the investors that are in the South or in these regions outside, we don't have seed stage funds really outside of the like outside, like the coast do. So was that part of the reason? Were you thinking like we're not going to be able to raise money until we get to at least one million in, in ARR? 
uh, we got to build. We have to. We have to sustain ourselves. You know, I, I think the the driving force more than anything else was that we we had seen what happened to a lot of software companies just a couple years prior, and we again being first timers uh, wanted to be wanted to bear all the risk, wanted to be super conservative. And so you're right. When we started Emma, we said that the goal, the defining goal is profitability, right? And we knew that was going to be a story. Now, I'm sure it was also a little bit of a factor of the times in the sense that, to your point, like there weren't a lot of easy and obvious capital sources, right? NCN didn't exist, right? There, I mean, in terms of seed funds, like I, I, don't, I don't know that there was a single one right outside of healthcare at that point. So we knew that that would be a little bit difficult to navigate, and find our way to the right people, good people, smart people, et cetera, certainly at an institutional level, um, and certainly figure like we would have, you know, more choices, more options, um, you know, a little bit further down the line if we had, you know, a, a nice group of paying customers, a, a really good product, you know, sort of that they were taking advantage of those sorts of things. So, so yeah, a little, little, little bit of all of that. So was it only NCN that came in, or had you started looking outside of Nashville to start right, to, to bring in a capital partner from outside the city? Well, you know, we had always, as much as we never um, acted on it, we had always had conversations with potential investors, with, with firms and funds, um, most of whom were not here, right? Most of whom were on the coast. And I always valued those conversations, you know, not only because you start to build some relationships that might set you up to go back to them later and, 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 and raise money. But also, you know, you're talking to people who are often industry experts who may have invested in, you know, um, companies like ours or, or complementary to ours or competitive ours. And, and so I always walked away a little bit smarter after this conversation. So that was, a, I thought, thought that was always a very useful thing to do is to regularly have some of those, some of those uh, phone calls and visits. When we got closer to the actual raise, you're right, we, we decided to take some money from NCN and pair that with you know, essentially a loan from Square One Bank, which was like Silicon Valley Bank had come in with sort of a little bit of a new model based like a a venture more debt, on revenue. A venture debt product? Yeah. In a sense? Yeah, yeah exactly, with, with some warrants attached to it. So so we kind of had um, two flavors of that coming in simultaneously because Square One, um, like SVP and like a lot of the banks, sort of like to have, or essentially require you to have an institutional investor for them to come in. NCN served and served that role for them, and then they were comfortable coming in alongside. So at that point, you were thinking, let's raise the money, build this thing for exit, and, and find a buyer. Um, was that was that more or less it, or did, was there maybe another round or two after that? No, that, that was the last. That was really the first and only round. Um, we thought the time frame was going to be a little bit further out. Uh, we were thinking, you know, something will happen in the next you know, three, four, you know, five years. Um, we started to engineer toward that first with some key hires that I mentioned earlier, and then sort of you know lining up a team, sort of you know helping us kind of think through that, aiming at that, and and then sort of the timing. Actually, we had an inbound um, sort of approach a little bit sooner than we expected, but but far enough into that process where we had a chance to accelerate some things, get some get some great people on board, and, and kind of feel you know ready for that. So a lot of entrepreneurs, they come to me and say, you know, how do, how do I raise money? Like, how do I pitch investors? What do, how do I get their attention? And like my, my tongue-in-cheek answer is usually like, if you build a great company, people are going to invest. <laughs> like, they'll find you or like, you don't have to pitch necessarily if you built a great company. You know, building a profitable company, um, 20 million in ARR, it sounds like, uh, you know, you, you, you've done that. You've built a great company. So maybe the pitch wasn't as difficult for an entrepreneur who's maybe just uh, still trying to um, prove out the growth. Um, so let's let's switch hats for a second. You you've done a, a little bit of angel investing. 
what advice do you have for entrepreneurs in, uh, that you're looking at? Like, what are some of the things, because you're looking, you're not looking at companies with $20 million in ARR right. that are looking to raise money. Um, so as an angel investor, what kind of tips or things that you've seen uh, in the entrepreneurial community that you're looking for, um, for maybe companies that are starting to get some traction, can they have ideas or do you want to see things that are a little bit further along or does it depend maybe if it's an idea in a space that you know well? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. Um, par part of the reason that I, that I and we sort of wanted to go through uh, an acquisition event, right? I, there are obvious reasons for wanting to do that. But the secondary reason was to finish the process and, and the education, right? Like we had, we had never started a company and we wanted to do that, right? We'd never built a product, wanted to do that, built out a team, you know, ended up running a team of, you know, 180, 190 people. That was new and interesting. Um, and then going through what the rest of that process looked like was, was incredibly informative. And not many people get to go through that. And I wanted the full experience from, from soup to nuts, right? Idea on paper all the way through to hopefully successful exit. And for me, um, angel investing, which I've done a, a little bit of since, right, is kind of continuing that education, right, to understand that process, how things look from that side of the table, in addition to be able to lean in and support some um, fellow entrepreneurs at, at a very critical early stage, like saying these aren't companies that are 10, 20, 30 million down the road, typically they're folks who are, who are just getting out of the gates, right, and, and could definitely use some help, not just, not just financially. It's been interesting, right, because I, I'm sure every angel has his or her own sort of design on these things. And, it, it, and for me, it's taken a little while to figure out exactly what the criteria look like and how to sort of hone in on those key things, because you think about it, right, the challenge that you have both as the founder entrepreneur and as the potential angel investor is you are introduced to a person or, or a small group of people to an idea to the beginnings of a business and in a very short window of time you've got to vet and ultimately make a determination on all of that right and how you feel about the people probably most importantly right um, how you feel about the idea how you feel about sort of the market that they're they're poised to enter and and make a call and then look around to other investors or potential investors and see how, how they feel and how you feel about them. And so there's a lot to sort of navigate. And you realize you've got to sort of get quickly to a handful of things that could be those sort of signals, whether or not this is going to be somebody who you just continue to have coffee with and, and you know, remain supportive right, from the sidelines, which is, which is where a lot of people are, um, I think, in that world. And, or, or whether this is somebody in something that is compelling enough for you to want to become a small part of their journey. And so it's interesting, right? Um, for me, my my little process, right, involves a getting a, a, having a gut feel about the about the founder or founders, right? Because above and beyond, as you as you know, like that's it, right? How you feel about these people, and how they're going to bring this business to life, and how they're going to navigate the ups and downs and the inevitable pivots here and there, right, um, becomes critical. And and are these people that you genuinely like and want to support and collaborate with on some level? So that's sort of the the, the biggest part of it. Um, and there are interesting little sort of tells there, right? You know, coming out of, coming into and through and out of a coffee meeting, right? Or, or a follow-up session, right? And how that goes and how it's handled sort of before and after that sort of thing. And then typically the thing that I'll do next is if I really do like the, the people and their idea, then I'll try to bring in the next smartest or smarter person who, um, whose opinion I trust a lot to sit with us or to sit with them on their own and, and let me sort of, you know, bounce off their thoughts a little bit and see what they think. Uh, particularly if, if it's an industry that I don't know as well as, as somebody else might. And it sounds like as you were raising money, you were you were taking calls with investors, you were building relationships with investors over time. So when you were ready to raise money and you decided, okay, now is the right time, you had already built relationships over several years. 
I think that's maybe an important thing. Uh, is that maybe a piece of advice you give entrepreneurs? Like if you're looking to raise money from a specific angel or, or a VC, start building that relationship as early as possible so they can uh, they can get to know you. They don't have to make that decision in two and a half months of whether or not they're they're going to have to make an investment decision. I think that's I think that's totally right because you're right. Like this is this is the ultimate relationship that you're you're talking about creating, right? Somebody putting money, putting their 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 money in, ter- in terms of angels, right? Personal personally personal stake, personal bet on you as a person. And and the more you can build relationship with that person, the more you can build relationships with people that person knows again and, and sort of likes and trust. I think it helps. Um, you know, immensely, we're, we're just looking for points of validation around this thing, right? Um, and if you can tell me that you you already know and have, have worked with or have the trust of some people that, that I, I know and, and trust, then that's a shortcut to that, right? Um, I think I think that's one, that's one, and of course, it's also, um, it's also a sign that that young founder, that founder can, knows how to sort of essentially work a pipeline, right? Just like they'll have to manage a sales pipeline later, other forms of this. What about that early relationship pipeline, you know, primarily of supporters and potential investors? And can they run that process with thoughtfulness and diligence, just like you're going to expect that, that to show up in other aspects of the company? And there are other things too, right? Like all, all I mean, it, I personally love to see the founder who, who kind of like us, right, has been, um, has found a way to scrape together, you know, the beginnings of that business on as few resources as possible, right, with as little outside help as possible. Because in the, even if you raise money, right, to see that someone can work that way and think that way and move the business along, right, at a pretty good clip, um, even without a ton of outside, outside help is, is, again, another point of validation that you've got somebody who's hungry and scrappy and able to do a lot with a little um, and so that every dollar that, that we as a group might put in, you know, is going to be put to pretty good use. And, and entrepreneurs here uh, from investors a lot, we, we want to see somebody who's coachable. And I think that's a great way to prove that you're coachable. If you go and you sit with an, an investor who says, hey, here are a couple of things that, uh, that I'd, like, I'd like to see you get done. And you can prove that you can go out and, and be scrappy and figure out how to, how to accomplish these things. And, and even, it shows that you're listening and that you can go and execute on, on other people's ideas, even if they're not your ideas. You don't have to know everything. You need to know your business. And you need to know your industry, of course. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, some of, some of the qualities that we, we really singled out after years of doing this, of years of hiring and, and working with people, right? Self-awareness was maybe the biggest of all, right? Do I come in with a little bit of humility, Right? Can I read the audience around me? Do I know? What, can I pick up signals when I need to listen a little bit more, or when I need to rethink, you know, an approach? Right? And again, when when that sort of all shrinks down to perhaps forty five minutes over coffee, right? I'm going to walk out feeling a lot differently about someone who talked the entire time, about somebody who didn't quite seem to to listen to any you know relevant experiences I, I might have you know brought to bear. Um, and even within that session, right, you can you can pick up on certain signals. And then you're right, like a big thing for me, and I know for a lot of angels, is what happens in between the coffees, right? If if you've got the business at point A, when we when we catch up and we catch up a month later, what's happened? What's moved forward? What have you accomplished, right? In that in that interim, um, that shows me that in a little bit of time you can again sort of accomplish some things and move the whole thing forward. Well, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, in closing, we'd love to hear maybe a couple, maybe a couple pointers you can kind of throw together off the, uh, you know, off the top of your head uh, to entrepreneurs who are thinking about raising money outside of the, the coastal ecosystems. What what are some tips that you can provide to them? Maybe some last words of wisdom. Ah, the dreaded words of wisdom. Um, 
Well, I think we covered some of that. I, I think treating every introduction, right, and, and every connection as uh, a small nugget of gold, right, is really critical, right? When, when someone says, I'm going to introduce you to a friend or I'm going to introduce you to somebody I think can be really helpful, being really, really diligent and thoughtful and reaching out immediately and setting up coffee, treat this like a, a customer, right? And a, and a prospective customer and, and treat them very, very well, right? Make sure that they understand, you know, appreciate uh, your sense of gratitude for them giving uh, you a little bit of time and a little bit of advice and experience and, and follow up, right? And follow through, um, thank them when they make those introductions, follow back up and let them know how that went. Not only is it just good form, like that's how you build relationship and build trust and credibility um, in, in these early folks. So I think that that matters immensely. I do think there's value in, in, in being a little bit polished with, with the pitch deck and, and with any materials because, again, we have a limited amount of time to sort of take a look at this. And if the deck is riddled with grammatical errors and, and some of it doesn't make sense and some of it leaves big gaps, people early on in them will, will joke about this. Like I'm, I'm, I became like big on one-pagers and getting your thoughts on, on paper for whatever the project is or whatever the idea is that you wanted to have us spend time on because I just think words on paper are such a, a, a window into the, to the mind and how someone organizes their thoughts and expresses those thoughts you know, clearly and succinctly yeah. and in a compelling way. And so I think those, those early materials do matter in spending time to make sure that you um, have expressed yourself and your idea uh, as well as you can matters a lot. And I, I, I coach folks to get a little, if, if that's not a skill that they have, to go find a friend of theirs who, who does and can serve as not only a second set of eyes, but maybe somebody could help bring a little bit of design and polish to it. It's the first expression of the product of the business, right? So I think, I think good pitch decks and, and similar items matter. There are a lot of resources out there now that really give you no excuse not to. Like you've got these uh, entrepreneurship centers all across the country, but even yeah. just going online and finding a PowerPoint template that uh, you can either buy for a couple of bucks or that's already built in uh, and that's already got the design built. You just kind of input everything. There's really, there's really not an excuse for, for that kind of... That's right. Like we didn't have the business model generator back in our day and we didn't have this sort of, you know, the, these well-known sort of templates, right, for these things, which which are super helpful. And, you, and, and we all roll our eyes a little bit sometimes over how templated, say, a pitch deck might be. But there's a reason all those, those core pieces are, are pretty much, you know, uh, required. And I, and I do think you're right. And, and not only that, like going and, and pitching, you know, people close to you, family members, friends, colleagues, peers, you know, foreign coworkers, like it's just going to make you sharper every time you go out with it, right, if, if you get some meaningful feedback. And, and I would add a lot of entrepreneurs, their pitch deck is like the, the sales deck that they bring to a customer. And I, I have to tell them, like, we of course yeah. we want to understand yeah. your business and your product, but um, you're not you're not pitching to us for a sale. You're pitching to an investor, and there's not usually enough interesting information in there that gets a, an investor excited. If I were a customer, yeah, this sounds really cool. But why as an investor should I get involved? Yeah, I, I agree. I think understanding your audience and, and what they need to hear matters a ton. And of course, you know, the other thing is, you know, if if uh, if I see a pitch deck with um, with the inevitable hockey stick, right, coming next, coming to a theater near you next year, right? I'm like, I, I know the math probably worked out that way, but can we just change the math? Like, make them, squish the math down, right, so it looks a little bit more reasonable and approachable, you know? Um, well, I really want to thank you for your time. Thanks for coming in and sharing your story. Clint Smith, founder of Emma, in the studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, thanks for listening to Starps in the Studio, and we will catch you next time.
Thank you again for listening to the latest episode of Startups in the Studio. If you'd like to dig in deeper into this episode or other episodes, you can visit our website, startupsinthestudio.com, to find show notes and links we found to be relevant based on these interviews. Of course, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Give us a high rating and positive review wherever you listen to your podcast. And please feel free to share Startups in the Studio with anyone you think would enjoy our conversations. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what we can do better, give us some topic or interview ideas, or just send us a note and say hello. You can reach me at phil, P-H-I-L, at startupsinthestudio.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care, and go out there and raise some money.